0: Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. So happy to be joining you one week before the start of the NFL season. There's an awful lot to talk about. This week on the podcast, I've got Ryan Tannehill, the rejuvenated quarterback of the upstart Tennessee Titans. Uh, Spoke to him late last week. Uh, He's very much in we got to go prove it again mode after the Titans' great end to the 2019 season. And we'll also talk to Arthur Blank, the owner of the Atlanta Falcons. He's got a new book out, Good Company, a business tip book. Uh, And we'll also ask him just a little bit about what he thinks about what's going on in the NFL and whether the season will be played to fruition. Now, you know, what I am thinking about these days, we sit here a little more than a week before the start of the regular season. I've got to make my predictions in my column in Football Morning in America next Monday. And, uh, you know, every morning I wake up because I thoroughly, I, I, I'm thoroughly confused about who to pick to win the Super Bowl. A lot of years, I have a great idea. And the team I really want to pick to win the Super Bowl is the Kansas City Chiefs, because even though they were down 10 points with eight minutes to go against San Francisco uh, just six or seven months ago, I think we're looking at it now, and something that Andy Reid told me in training camp really struck me. He said, you know, remember, we're behind in every game in the playoffs, and not just behind, but significantly behind you know the Houston Texans were up 24 in the second quarter the Tennessee Titans were up by a touchdown uh, also in the second quarter and with 8 minutes to go against the 49ers in the Super Bowl uh, the Chiefs were down 10 before Patrick Mahomes pulled a few bits of magic uh out of, out of out of out of somewhere who knows where but you know the 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 point i wanted to make is that you, ha- you take that, you know, that they had to battle to win every one of those playoff games. Now, obviously they, bu- they blew Houston out because Houston's defense just wasn't up to it. But the Tennessee game was tough and the San Francisco game was very tough. And so I just sort of look at this and I add to the fact that when you think about it, And this is something that I think we probably don't think about enough. You go to in the last 14 NFL seasons, there has not been a repeat winner. In fact, it's been since the 2004 and 2005 New England Patriots that any team has repeated. And I oftentimes will think of that. It's one of the reasons why very rarely do I pick a team to repeat. And You know, I hate to be subject to the whim of the fact that the last team I saw in training camp uh, this year was the Kansas City Chiefs, and there wasn't a lot not to like. You know, they've got 20 of 21 coaches back. They've got 20 of 22 starters back. They've got a great, fun, effervescent, explosive new running back in Clyde Edwards Hilaire. I don't know how many people in the last two or three weeks I've said, don't let Clyde Edwards Hilaire get past the first half of the first round of your fantasy draft. Um, And so I just think that they're a really good team, obviously, and they have enough answers on defense. But again, honestly, what I'm trying to do is talk myself out of picking them, and we'll see what happens. We'll see in the next five days, uh, what thoughts go through my mind as I stare up at the ceiling at 6.05 a.m. Eastern time as I look up and say, okay, what about the Saints? Or what about the Niners? What about an upstart team? What about the Bucks?" And by the way, I really like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So let's get to our guest now. Enough of me. You hear from me a lot, don't you? But enough of me. Uh, let's get to Ryan Tannehill. I talked to him at the end of a practice session and meeting uh, late last week over a video conference from Nashville. Uh, hey, look, I think Ryan Tannehill is an incredible, incredible story. I mean, think of this. I just want you to think of this. Ryan Tannehill, in trade from Miami to Tennessee, cost the Tennessee Titans 1% Of their salary cap last year and the 135th pick in the 2020 draft and all the Titans got for that was the top rated quarterback in football and the quarterback who had the highest yards per attempt in the NFL last year both very much different from the career marks of Ryan Tannehill but I asked Tannehill about that and several other things. Here we go with Ryan Tannehill. Back in the Peter King podcast, so happy to be joined by Ryan Tannehill, the Tennessee Titans quarterback. And, you know, Ryan, I tell people this, and when I have written this or talked about this, everybody says, really? There's a couple of, to me, amazing things about the story of Ryan Tannehill in 2019. One, you had a quarterback rating of over 117. That's the highest quarterback rating in the NFL in six years since Nick Foles in 2013. And you also had the highest yards per attempt at 9.6 yards per attempt uh, of any quarterback in football. And both of those things, obviously you had never done before in, in your, in your NFL career. But what I think is most interesting about you is, is you look at what is the compensation that, that the Tennessee Titans paid to get you. Number one, a fourth round draft pick, which was the 135th pick in the draft this year. And they also got Miami to pay 75% of your salary last year. So They got you for one percent of the salary cap and and uh, the salary cap last year and uh the 135th pick in the draft and you were the most efficient quarterback in the nfl with the best kind of deep arm percentage i guess i would call it when i think of yards per attempt i always think of you know uh how well you're throwing the ball deep but Anyway, so that's my very long-winded way of saying, man, heck of a job last year.
1: Yeah, thank you. It was a lot of fun. You know, I think, uh, like you said, different circumstance coming in to to Tennessee last year, coming in last spring, but, um, you know, had a a lot of fun last year and excited to, to see what we can do this year.
0: Arthur Brown, your offensive coordinator, told me that when you came in, And he met you and talked to you about things. Obviously, you came to Tennessee a year and whatever, three months ago, clearly as a backup to Marcus Mariota. And you told him, if I'm not mistaken, at one point, hey, you know, I'm going to be the best backup I can be, and I'm going to try to help Marcus the best I can, which had to be kind of a difficult thing for you to be able to say knowing that you felt that you're a starting quarterback
1: yeah no doubt it was a it was a big adjustment for me you know going back coming here and and just getting a new role you know stepping into a backup role when i had been a starter my whole career um you know still believed in myself and and knew that i could play but was stepping into a new role so i had to adjust to that um and kind of figure it out along the fly you know i'd had Great backups down in Miami. Matt Moore was with me for a long time down in Miami, and uh, saw him do a great job for me as far as helping me throughout the whole process. And um, you know, once I kind of settled into the role a little bit, then and, and competed in training camp, did the best I could. All right, now that now that the season's rolling, I'm going to do the best job I can about preparing the defense on a daily basis, getting myself ready to play, and supporting Marcus um along the way so that was kind of my thought process is you know you can't control the circumstances you're in all the time but you can control how you handle it and and your approach and 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 what you get out of each and every day and so that was kind of my thought process going into each and every day is is be the best I could and um and go from there you ended up really liking Mariota didn't you I did Marcus is a great guy you know I, I had a lot of fun with Marcus really enjoyed being in the room with him obviously um could have been. Or it was a really tough situation, but it could have been a very awkward situation um, within the room, you know, with the change going going down mid-season. So, uh, really thankful for the way that, that Marcus handled it. He's, he's just a class act through and through, and a competitor and, and a great football player. And we'll be rooting him along, you know, the rest of his career. So, if I could,
0: if I could ask you an overarching question that you probably have answered sixty-four times, but I'm just really curious. You you basically, you were a 63% passer in your career at Miami. Your first year at Tennessee, you're a 70% passer. Your career rating in Miami was 87. Um, And in 2019, it was 117.5. So just give me an idea when you look at it, when you look at your career and what was so good for you last year that allowed you to play at that level? Give me two
1: or three thoughts of why that happened. I think we really came together as a team. You know, I think Arthur did a great job of, of putting our team in, in a position to succeed. Uh, and the guys bought in. We believed in, and believed in each other. And I think at the end of the day, that played a big part in it is when you go out with the trust, the guys around you, uh, the belief that, that someone's going to make a play, we may not have the perfect play called, um, may have a, a really tough look on our hands, but we believe in each other and believe that someone's going to make a play. Someone's going to step up and, and find a way to get open. Uh, and if we are covered and I put the ball in a good spot, that belief that, that they're going to go make a play on it, which guys did for me, you know, multiple times throughout the year, obviously was a, was a huge part of, of our success. You, you, had, you had a
0: bunch of – I mean Arthur Smith is an interesting guy himself obviously but you had a lot of guys who had been cut elsewhere or or who had been undrafted free agents or or whatever and I'm or, or lower picks or whatever and I'm thinking about guys like Khalif Raymond and you know a mid-round pick like Janu Smith and I mean you had a bunch of those guys but what do you think it is about the way Arthur Smith uh, sort of puts game plans together, puts plays together that makes him work for your offense with a bunch of guys who were not first-round draft
1: picks? You know, Coach Vrabel and, and Arthur and, and the organization believe you know, we, we don't really care how you got here. It's just a matter of, of what you do when you're here and, and going out and improving, getting better each and every day and competing. And uh, it's not only what we say, it's it's what – what happens? You know, you see guys like Khalif Raymond, Anthony Ferkser, um You mentioned John, who a uh, uh, guy got drafted, but um, not a high draft pick. You know, we have tons of guys. that could keep going that, that made plays for us throughout the year. And you know, Rashard Davis came and make a big third down conversion for us against Houston last game of the last game of the year. So you know, we've had guys that have come in and stepped up and, and played big for us, and um, that's kind of the way we run this program. Is is doesn't really matter how you get here. It's a matter how you work and how you perform, you know, once you're here, we're going to give you, if you d- deserve it, then uh, coaches are going to give us opportunities to, to go out and make it happen. And, um, you know, it's a great, it's a great feeling to, to know that the guys are, are stepping up and, and taking advantage of those opportunities. And you mentioned Arthur, he does a great job of of accenting our uh, our attributes. You know, whether it's, it's using Derek, obviously, who, who, played a huge role in, in our success last year on uh, the offensive line opening up holes for them. Uh, and then, you know, accenting our receivers. We have a bunch of guys who are really good with the ball in their hands, uh, strong, tough runners, big bodies that, you know, you get the ball in their hands, they can create some big plays for us. But then you add in, you know, guys like Khalif who, you know, we had some big shots down the field, you know, throughout the year and, and in the playoffs. So um, we really try to try to, you know, keep defenses on their toes all, all while staying true to who we are and what we believe in as an offense.
0: You know, I was at your practice one day last week, and, uh, and so I, I asked uh, John Robinson, the general manager, I said, what is it about Arthur Smith? And he goes, you know, he tries to zig while the defense is zagging. And, and to me, I look at some plays last year, and one of the reasons why I think Arthur Smith was a guy who people kind of fell in love with as the year went on I mean, my favorite play of yours last year as a team was, and I remember watching this game. You're playing Houston. You're both eight and five. It's early in the fourth quarter. It's second and three. And I'm looking at the screen and I said, who is that huge guy in the backfield? (laughs) And it's Johnu Smith, your tight end. And you just, you pitched to Johnu Smith. He ran 57 yards. And uh and 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 I mean he didn't look like a lumbering tight end. I mean, that was he is an athletic, fast guy. And so I just looked at that and I said, first of all, where did that play come from? And you got the game on the line, you got Derrick Henry on your team, and you got your tight end, you know, running a pitch play on second and three. But I mean, that's the kind of reason why. I kind of look at Arthur Smith and I said, Hey, cool. I mean, that play came out of left field, but I really kind of loved it.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, he's an innovative mind. He's a fast thinker. Uh, he's always trying to push the envelope of, of what we can do creative ways to to do. Like I said, things that we believe in and, and putting guys in different spots. Um, you know, I'm not even sure exactly how that came up. You know, we did in a walkthrough one time and like, Hey, looks pretty good. You know, John who's uh, a talented guy, great with the ball in his hands. Let's, Let's keep defenses on the toes. We actually did it in a hurry-up situation, I believe. So, um, you know, the more pressure that we can put defenses in and move our guys around and create the matchups we like and get the ball in our, our playmaker's hands, we're going to do that. Um,
0: I want to fast-forward now and ask you a little bit about this season, which obviously is going to be a, an unprecedented season. And I wonder – Let's let me let me just ask you a little bit about your off season, and ask you where you couldn't practice with your guys. You couldn't have OTAs. You couldn't do all these things. You get a big contract, but I assume you get this big contract and you say, man, I I want to work to, you know, deserve all this money and to still be a really, really good player. And so and you're on Zoom meetings instead of being around your guys. What was your offseason like for
1: you? Yeah, it was definitely different. You know, it's not not your typical NFL offseason, obviously, uh, with COVID and the shutdown happening. You know, starting in March, um, right after free agency. So, uh, had some adjusting to do. You know, we we adjusted on the fly. Uh, team did a great job of communicating with us and exactly what we were able to do. And I feel like guys really bought into the to the Zoom meetings. We locked in. We, we were focused and uh, really were able to detail things to a level that that we hadn't been able to do in the past year. Uh, we have a lot of consistency, a lot of guys coming back on our offense. So, we didn't, we weren't installing an offense for the first time to these guys. It was, right. It was more of getting in depth. How do we how do we get better? How do we take the detail to the next level that it's going to help us execute um, on a more consistent basis? So, uh, really proud of the way our guys dialed in and and locked in, and we we're able to uh, get a lot out of those Zoom meetings. And then, you know, of course, physically, yeah, you're you're training, you're you're trying to get ready to throw. You know, I was able to throw with Janu um and Darrington down in Florida and um really try to get get as much physical work and, and prepare your body your legs your arm um get ready to go for the for the season but yeah it's, it's a different off season but um I feel like our guys did a good job of, of buying in and, and locking into controlling what we can control getting the most out of out of what we had in front of us and then um you know once we got here it was adjusting to the uh the new COVID protocols and, and the new normal and then you know, same same business as usual. Darrington Evans,
0: you just mentioned Darrington. Um, he's a young, he's a rookie third round pick from Appalachian State running back. I get a feel I get the feeling he's gonna be kind of all over the map again, uh and, and kind of a fun chess piece for you and for your offensive coordinator. It otherwise your team You know, other than obviously you lose your right tackle in free agency, Jack Conklin, but your team is pretty much comes back as, you know, as normal, right? So, I mean, do you sort of view this as a way to try to hopefully in your mind take that next step?
1: Yeah, that's our whole goal is is to, you know, we're not satisfied with with reaching the the championship game like we did last year. You know, obviously – we were a dark horse and, and no one really bought into us, but um, we believed in each other and and ha- you know had a lot of belief that we could accomplish everything we wanted to, and we were able to fight our way back from uh, you know two and four to to, to making a playoff run. So uh, we got a little taste of it, you know. We got a little taste of success, and um, you know we know what it looks like to 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 string wins together. We know what it looks like to to play good football, and now we're just you know chasing that trying to do that each and every day, push the envelope on, on what we can accomplish and, and not being satisfied um, really with anything. You know, it, it, there's no, there's no limits of what we can do. You can only, um, you know, people may try to put limits on your, on us, you know, but we're not going to put limits on ourselves and, and what we can accomplish. We're going to go out and try to push the envelope each and every day, push each other uh, to get our best football. So
0: we'll end with this. Um, you had a rather emotional experience. Uh speech and appeal along with your teammates um, you know, in the wake of sort of another national awakening um, about racist politics and, and perhaps racist actions by uh, police officers in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And you know, of, of the people on your team you know, you were chosen, I I guess, and you're going to have to explain this to me, to speak out, to talk about the injustices that you still see in the United States. Tell me how that came about and why in that sort of two-minute address that you got so emotional about it.
1: Yeah, something that you know, I didn't really know I was. We were walking into it to have that kind of day. You know, obviously we had conversations about the the instances that have been taking place, but um, really came in and, and had a had a leadership meeting and then uh, a team meeting and was really able to have an open dialogue uh, with a bunch of the guys. You know, getting on the mic and, and being able to speak uh, on their feelings on on the situations, on experiences, really just a multi-layered you know thoughts on actions moving forward. Uh, we really just had had great dialogue for for several hours on um, on a multitude of issues. And you, didn't pra- you didn't practice that day, right? No, we did not practice. You know, we uh, you know came in with the thought of practicing, and then just uh, the heaviness uh, of the topic, the emotions that, that were brought out um, throughout that that discussion. Uh, we really just felt it was the best interest of, of our football team to to continue to deepen those discussions and um try to create action moving forward uh, with with things that we're going to be doing here here in Tennessee uh, and then you know putting out that that statement as a team together. Why were you the person who spoke for the team? Well Kevin Kevin Byer, you know, in, initially uh, yeah. started it you know we were up there together. Um, we felt it'd be impactful to to not only have a, a black man speaking but also uh, a white man, you know, a guy who, doesn't deal with the same uh, racial justices or biases on a daily basis but uh, i've been able to to, to understand a, a little bit more obviously i'll never fully understand i can't feel those those feelings and uh, but i'm able to, to understand a little bit more through my relationships and and conversations that i've had over the years and um, you know i feel strongly that that america is not where we need it to be you know I, I, I love being American I love living in this country I think it's a great country that offers a lot of opportunity but um, we're not we're not where we need to be We still have have work to do. I think we've come a long way uh, since this country was first founded um, you know with slavery being a, a big part of that but we're not there yet Obviously um, there's a lot of undertones that, that still persist even to this day so um, we just want to continue to fight for positive change to, to affect our country and and make the world a safer and more equal place for for all those americans who live here and um you know that's something that that i feel strongly about and um i was emotional about it just thinking about my kids you know hearing instances of of teammates who have been in in situations where they didn't know if they were going to um you know walk away from the instance they didn't um just being profiled and in situations like that where um you know, if I picture my kids being in the same situation, it, it chokes me up because there's so much love you have for your kids. And um, just the fact that of someone's color, their skin completely changes interactions or um, just a day to day life. It, it breaks my heart.
0: It was amazing to listen to Troy Vincent. I think he was on, I forget, maybe Mike Greenberg show this week. And Troy Vincent talked about having kids, 20, boys, 22, 20 and 15 and thinking that man i just can't bear the thought of them being out there possibly being hunted and when you use a word like that wow it really is something that and you know it's hard for it's certainly hard for me to know because obviously i'm a white guy who grew up in a white town in connecticut went to a white college in ohio and and so and i mean i'm sure you probably feel a little bit of the same way but it's really hard in many ways for us to understand those things unless we sit and really try to take in what a lot of people like your teammates are
1: dealing with yeah no doubt you have to be intentional uh, i said this in front of the team you know unfortunately it's really easy as a, as a white person to go about your your life and and not see racism you know it doesn't affect you on a day-to-day basis you, if you're not intentional about noticing things um, it's easy to just go about your life it doesn't affect you so um, it's easy to just, to just live and not think it's a problem um, but if you're you're able to have conversations and open your eyes and, and really see things on a little bit deeper level and, and communicate and, and build relationships with people who don't look like you who aren't from the same place as you who you know grew up in a, in a different situation in a different location you're able to really learn a lot and um, you know that's something that that I've tried to do over the course of of my life of my career and and you know, I've been fortunate enough to be in in locker rooms pretty much my whole life and there's something special about being on a team and and building those relationships and and finding a common goal finding commonality and you realize that you know you're a lot more alike than than you are different you know and when you're able to to fight for something together to to sacrifice together to go through adversity together it really bonds you and, and brings it closest that uh, that is tough to simulate, you know, in the outside world. Um, you know, like I said, I'm I'm thankful that I've gotten to to be a part of these locker rooms and, and build these relationships and have my eyes opened to these situations because you know if I was living in my hometown, you know, back in Texas, and never really left, I, I probably wouldn't have my eyes open to the same way that, that I am now. You know, I, I'm I'm thankful for those that growth that I've been able to have over the years uh, through building relationships with good friends.
0: Gut feeling. Do you think that this carries into the season? Is there any chance that like in the NBA and some of these other sports that maybe you guys take a week off to protest this or what has, have, have you had any discussions like that?
1: I have no idea. You know, we haven't got that far. You know, we really, at the end of the day, you know, we're football players. We want to play, play football, but we also want to see see some change happen. We want to see America get better, America do better, uh, and, and people be treated equally and, and justice for those who aren't. So, um, you know, I don't know what, what it's going to look like, you know, heading into the season, but I know that, you know, we're going to continue to, to prepare to play, and at the same time we're going to try to, to affect positive change.
0: Ryan Tannehill, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast and uh, continued great success down in Nashville.
1: Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me.
0: Back on the Peter King podcast. Happy to be joined by Atlanta Falcons owner, Arthur Blank, a veteran of, uh, of quite a few wars in the national football league. And there's a couple of really interesting things in his book, which we're going to talk about today here in this podcast. Uh Arthur Blank has a book out called Good Company. Um, and, you know, for those who don't know the backstory of Arthur Blank, basically, you know, he's the co-founder of Home Depot. And, um, you know, later in life, he said, hey, let's have some fun. I'm going to buy a football team. And, oh, by the way, we'll also build one of the most beautiful stadiums in the world uh, in Atlanta. And so, Arthur, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me.
2: You're welcome, Peter. It's always good to talk with you.
0: So give me, I'm really curious, when you started to think about writing this book, Good Company, you know, I'm going to ask you two specific questions about it, but what was your goal when you went about writing this book?
2: Well, I think that, you know, what was amazing to me is that, you know, the great success we had at the Home Depot, and I was there for 23 years, and left as uh, as co-chairman and CEO, et cetera, um, that we established a set of, of six or eight in that case, because it's a public company, eight core values that really drove all of our success and continues to drive the success the company has under the current CEO, Craig Munir, who's done a wonderful job. Um, but then we went ahead and we bought the Atlanta Falcons, which you alluded to. And then we um, we obviously built the stadium several years ago. We, uh, we started a... a a new uh, franchise, Atlanta United, the soccer franchise. We um, we bought, acquired, and opened up and expanded. PGA Tour Superstores, number one golf retail in America, and operated and operate a couple of ranches in Montana that are open to the public, and uh, as well as our foundation. So the point is that all of those same values, those six core values, <clears throat> that we have used in building and running and continuing to run HD are in place today in all of these very diverse sets of businesses. And they've all had great financial success. And beyond that, which is probably the message of the book, is that the success, you can measure it financially, which you need to do in terms of having a sustainable organization long term. But beyond that, an organization that's connected um, with your people you're serving, your fans, your guests, your customers, um, making sure that you're connected to your uh, all stakeholders, your communities, and your associates. So it really speaks to um, having, having business that has purpose beyond just the bottom line. And I think that today, um, for a variety of reasons, but today I think young people particularly, um, and, and older people, but young people particularly are searching for more meaning in their lives. They want to be connected. To, uh, you know, to an industry and to a business and to a business type that not only is concerned about the pro- profitability, but concerned about why am I here? You know, what's my purpose? Uh, not just my purpose individually. Uh, you know, it's like a bigger question, Peter, we always ask ourselves throughout life is that, you know, you know what is, you know, what's the purpose of life? Why, and, and this is a kind of a flip of that where life is asking you, you know, you have a life, what is your purpose in living your life and how do you make it the most meaningful? And I think, you know, the beauty of this book is that it's not based on financial results. The financial results are there in every single case, but it's based on a set of behaviors that is um, sensitive and uh, supportive and uh, connected to uh, all the stakeholders. And I think that's the most meaningful part of it. And I think that's uh, that's what young people are looking for today. And that's what people who are kind of searching for You know, how do I develop a a culture that um, that helps keep um, our associates together, helps keep our our people serving together, helps being of service to the community and neighborhoods that we live in? So I think that's the beauty of the the book.
0: So I think one of the uh, kind of cool examples of how you run your organization and how you run your team is illustrated at your new stadium, your, your three-year-old stadium. Right. And I remember in 2017, I got a tour um, by Rich McKay, your, right. your, your, your president. He gave me right. a tour of the stadium, and the two things that I found most interesting, um, and you wrote about this in your book, okay? You and so I'm going to I'll ask you about this first, but there's a chapter in your book that's entitled going the extra two inches. Yeah. And so all the stadiums that are new over the years. So for people who don't quite understand, some stadiums have seats that are 19 inches wide and some stadiums have seats that are 21 inches wide. And some stadiums are built so that the 19-inch seats, a row of them, can be uh, taken out and a 21-inch row can co- can go in. But But be that as it may, you were confronted with an issue at this stadium when you were talking about building this stadium and talking about the design of this stadium that led to this chapter going the extra two inches. I want you to describe that for me.
2: Yeah, I think uh, it's indicative of, um, you know, it's an expression that my mother used to uh, say all the time, and, and it's it's really built into our, our values, and that is, you you know, you do the right things for the right reasons, and you live with the consequences. So um, we, uh, there were probably 15 of us, um, we had to make a decision about the kind of seating we would have in the stadium, and our project manager had set up, you know, um, which I – believe strongly in that we wanted to go sit in the seats ourselves and actually feel the difference. So we all sat in the different seats, et cetera, et cetera. And the one that was 21 inches, the standard in the Georgia Dome was 19 inches as is the case of most stadiums. We sat, I sat in the one that was 21 inches, had a certain kind of armrest, certain kind of back, et cetera. And I said, this is the by far the most, you know, the, the most comfortable one. And I remember the, um, The construction folks were there. The architect was there and uh, they didn't say anything. They just kind of looked at me and they said, well, okay, Um, is that your decision? I said, yeah, I mean, that's the most comfortable seating. And, you know, we have uh, our fans are going to be investing a lot in terms of uh, PSLs, in terms of ticket pricing, in terms of giving us their time, their energy. We want them to be comfortable. We want to find ways that we can say thank you to our fans um, in in any way we can. And this is an opportunity to do that. So about a week later, we had a meeting with all the architects and uh, just going over a variety of different things. The first thing they said was that uh, we appreciate your thinking behind making the seating wider, going from 19 to 21 inches. You realize that's going to add, you know, I I can't remember exactly, but how many many amount of square feet to the building? The total building itself is close to 3 million square feet. It probably added another 10, 15, maybe 20% to the size of the building. I said, are you aware of the cost of doing that? Um, Because obviously, as we are adding, you know, adding structure on, particularly as you go higher, it's going to get even more costly than it is lower to the base. And I said, well, I, you know, I'm I'm aware of I'm aware of the, the math of it. I understand of it. But we're not going to compromise that. I mean, whatever it is, it is. So we have to go back and do some redesigning of the building, which they had to do to accommodate that seating. And I did not want less seating in the building. We had 71,500 in the building. I, did, I didn't want to build a stadium where it was designed for 62, 63,000. I wanted to make sure that in terms of all the demographics, we could afford to have um, a mix in the stadium that represented the kind of mix that we have in Atlanta. So that was very important to me. So I told them can't compromise the number of seats. Stadium's got to become bigger, whatever the cost is. The cost is over time, our fans will appreciate the fact that we were thinking about them first. And I think that's really a really good example, Peter, of, you know, there are so many examples in all of our businesses and going back to HD, et cetera, where if you think about who you're serving first, in this, in this case, it's the fans, but it could be customers in our PGA stores. It could be guests in our, uh, our, mountain, our uh, Montana ranches. Um, you know, it, the decisions are not difficult to make then. Uh, and, you know, if you make long-term good decisions that the people you're serving, they will see that. They will appreciate that. They will know there's a management team, and owner, whatever the case may be, that really does care about them and can walk in their moccasins, if you will, and, uh, and, and appreciate, uh, you know, the pressures that they have.
0: You know, I think the other interesting part of the book was when you write about the aftermath of the Super Bowl, um, yeah. and you know, I, I, I thought first of all, um, you guys as an organization, after you know losing the the twenty eight to three lead, and it was obviously a devastating yeah. uh, day for everybody yeah. in your organization. But And I remember I told this to Matt Ryan the next year when I came to training camp. I said, man, I got to hand it to you. 45 minutes after that game, you stood up and you answered every question that there was. And you write about it. And one of the things you said in there that I thought was interesting, uh, and I quote, the immediate aftermath of such a blow is usually a time to take care of people, not a time to crack the whip. As a leader, it's important to know the difference. And so I wondered, take me back to those moments with your team after you lost the Super yeah, Bowl yeah. when you seemed to have victory so uh, uh, thoroughly in your grasp.
2: Yeah, well, that's certainly true. I think we did. And I think that Coach Quinn would tell you the same thing today. Uh, but we didn't. I mean, you know, we had it in our grasp and it eluded us and we lost it. We lost the game. I think that you know, um, because my personality basically is is one of being a caretaker. Um, and that's, you know, one of the joys that I get out of my life is, is caring for others. Uh, and whether it be in a business setting or in a family setting or in a community setting in any way, um, you know, I obviously was shocked. I was I was as, as devastated as any fan was, any player was. Um, but my mind went to, you know. This is where a leader needs to set the right example. This is where I, I need to to stand up and 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 um, and be a leader and show caring for other people, uh, and I think I was able to do that with our associates and with our players and our coaches. And uh, so, because of my focus was on them and not on my own feelings, um, it probably took me a longer time to um, to look back and and uh, and and fully personally understand and the impact it had on me. Um, but, you know, I made sure my kids were in a good place. I made sure all the other kids I could see were in a good place. I made sure our family and our associates and our coaches and our players, um, because I think that's what a leader really needs to, needs to do the right things and step up and, and, uh, and, un, and, and put it in the right perspective. I mean, they, uh, we made some mistakes, uh, you know, the other team played better when they had to play better. They made plays when we didn't make plays, and we didn't make some plays when we should have. But you know, that's the story of life as well. And so, you know, either you can uh, either you can curse the darkness or light a candle. So my approach ge- generally is to light a candle. And uh, um, you know, it took me. I think. I mean, I still, whenever I think about it, like you pose the question, we discuss it now, and I think about it, and you say you know, how, you know, how in heck could you possibly lose a game where you're up 28-3 and you got the ball on the 22-yard line and, you know, there's only a quarter and a half to go in the game. And, but, you know, I mean, things happen and, uh, you know, and you, and, and you move on from there.
0: How long did it take you in life to learn to light the candle?
2: You know, that's a good question, Peter. I think my mother, um, uh, who passed away just seven months short of a hundred um, in in 2015? Uh, they always had that approach. I mean, even when we were we were a very middle middle class family. We lived in a in a uh, one bedroom apartment with uh, one bathroom shared by my mother, my father, who passed away when I was I was 15. He was 44. My brother. Um, but despite not having anything, I think um, my mother never, you know, looked at her. Um, Ability to affect family, affect community, affect you know life, affect principle, which was very important to her, you know, really based on uh, on what she didn't have, but really what she did have, and she had a voice, she had a spirit, she had a heart, she had a very smart woman, and she used all those qualities, I think, in trying to trying to make a difference. She couldn't do a lot financially. Uh, now I'm I'm blessed having the resources to be able to you know to make a difference in a variety of ways, and we're blessed having our family foundation and our children involved in it as well. But um, I think it started really at those very early days and seeing my mother set that example. Um,
0: Who would you hope would read your book and learn the lessons that you've learned
2: in your book, Good Company? Yeah. You know, my hope is as many people would read it as, you know, as would have an interest in it. Uh, the book, I think, if you ask me, okay, well, set some priorities. Who is it? I would say, you know, young folks today in college. When you uh, when you talk to when you talk to college kids today, um, you know, they're asking you know bigger questions more frequently than uh, than we have in the past. I mean, they're asking the big questions of life. You know, what is happiness? And I can give you a lot of examples of that. We talk about one example in the book, and, and it's a you know, program available today that Dr. Lori Santos, who's um, a professor of psychology at Yale University, she started a program in response to that question that kids were asking on campus. Well, started out with 30 kids, and that's 300. And now a quarter of the student body at Yale University, you know, attend that class. They had to move it off campus because there's such a demand for it. Harvard has a similar program. Many schools have a similar program. Hers has now gone online. But the point of all that is that I think that our younger generations are asking the bigger questions uh, and asking them and, and are pushing harder for answers. So, you know, my hope is that in a business context, whether it be for profit, nonprofit, community, et cetera, that these six core values which aren't have nothing to do with any numbers, but has to do with behavior and relationships with people that are stakeholders in this greater circle of a of a business in this case, or of life. Um, they understand that if we do the right things, treat people correctly, you know, take take care of them, give back to the community, listen and respond, include everybody in really good thinking, all of those kind of things. And we give many examples throughout the book that are simple. They're not complicated examples. Um, that you can have the kind of financial success, which we all want in life. And that's a good thing. I believe in capitalism, but at the same time, you can lead a life of purpose, not just for yourself, but be connected to an organization that you're proud of. So when you go home and your chest is stuck out and your shoulders are back and you're, and you're, um, and you're walking the house, I mean, you feel good about what you did all day, not just because you made a good living that day, but because you were attached to an organization that you were proud of, an organization that was giving great service and uh, taking care of community, giving back to community in any variety of different ways. And, uh, and I think that's what our young people are really looking for today, um, much more so than I think in the past. And, and we see that on college campuses. The book is Good Company
0: by Arthur Blank. It's published by William Morrow. Um, Arthur, good luck with the book. And before we uh, sign off, Let me ask you three quick NFL questions as we are on the verge of this season. Um, I have been surprised, and I wonder if you have been, by the fact that the testing program uh, has been so successful throughout the first month of its existence, first month to five weeks. I was talking to somebody at the league office on Friday who said to me, of our last 60,000 tests of players, we've had zero positives. Uh, it confirmed positives. So tell me your thought about how the league has sort of attacked this and the performance of the testing program so far.
2: Well, I think it. I think it's a credit really uh, to uh, 345 Park Avenue, the league office, to Roger, a commissioner, Roger Goodell, and really to, um, Uh, the owners, but primarily the league staff has really been provided the leadership on this and the medical staff. So I think that um, the NFL has committed itself to, um, you know, we we all want to play games. We all want to have fans. We all want to enjoy all the wonderful things connected to our national pastime, the National Football League. But I think that the league has been, been dictated and driven by what science and what the medical profession is telling them. And they've you know, they have a tremendous medical staff in their own regard. And Dr. Sills, who leads all of that in coordination and collaboration with with other medical facilities and other uh, incredibly bright people in the field, you know, they've allowed them to make the decisions. So the league, I think, has been smart in, uh, you know, uh, following the advice and counsel they've gotten and haven't really second-guessed it. I don't think, you know, we as owners I know have not. I mean, we, if that's what the science is, that's what the medical says... That's what public policy makes the most sense to protect our fans. And if you talk to our fans today, uh, the fans will tell you that they have still have real concerns about safety uh, and they should. Uh, and that's why uh, paying attention to the protocols of CDC, which the NFL has done, paying attention to uh, improper distancing, wearing masks, et cetera. All of those things are what we have to do because the responsibility really to beat this pandemic at least in the United States, we can where we have some control over ourselves. Is really based on human behavior. Um, it's not. It's not going to be based on you know a wish or you know a desire or whatever. We all have wishes and desires. But if the human behavior is such that we follow these protocols, and the NFL is doing that, I think we'll be successful. If we don't, we won't. But the NFL has done a good job, and, and a tremendous tribute, I think, to our players. We have taken this seriously, and where they have a bubble. When they're at the facilities and they're working, et cetera, et cetera. And they've gone home. Um, they they understand the need for a bubble in their own in their own lives, and they've and I think they've been very very sensitive to that and have been very successful at it.
0: You have much of a gut feeling as we sit here right now on the verge of the NFL's hundred and first season. Will the season be played to completion? You think there will be a Super Bowl?
2: Yeah, I do. Um, I think. You know, I think, uh, Peter, what we what we may find and you look at the and you you're on top of this as you know, as I am, is that, you know, the great majority, with a few exceptions of the teams in the league, uh, despite even in some cases, we were public officials uh, have permitted us to have fans like in the state of Georgia, as an example. um, You know, the franchises have decided that at least to start the season. First game, first two or three games, first month of the season, which is what our decision was, both for football and soccer, uh, that we're not going to have fans. And I went to our first soccer match last Saturday night. We have another one this afternoon uh, that I'll be going to later. Um, and it was just great to see the players on the pitch or on the field or whatever and and, and to see it be televised properly and fans could sit home and enjoy it and be safe. and uh, And that was fine there's no question the game is better when the fans are in the stands from the player standpoint, you know, from the fan standpoint, you know, et cetera, but we have to make sure that we do that in a safe environment. And, uh, uh, so I think the, the to answer your question specifically, I do think there'll be a complete se- season. I, I do think we'll have a Super Bowl. Uh, there may be some clubs and some clubs already in like the state of New York and we have New Jersey and you have the, the Jets and the Giants, et cetera, they won't be able to play all, all year. There's some other clubs have decided that they'll be able to play, they won't have fans all year. Yeah. And some other clubs have made a similar decision. But you know, we'll um you know we'll have to see. But I I think we'll have a full season. I think it be a great season. I think when you're watching the game on television you'll you'll focus on the game, the game itself. The quality is going to be just as good. Um I'll probably go through a little bit of a tune up in the first couple of games because we don't have the preseason games. That's a factor. We can't scrimmage against other teams, which is a factor. Um, I think the clubs have done as good as they can. The coaches I know have worked hard. I know that our coach certainly has in communications under these conditions with our players and has taken full advantage of the extent of training camp, which has been expanded, as you know, uh, to allow for more time for the players to make sure their conditioning is where it needs to be. So, um, uh, we'll we'll have to take you know as you know as our listeners all know that this disease has a life unto its own. Um, it's a little bit like dancing with a gorilla; you don't stop dancing till the gorilla says it's over. Um, but, but, <laughs> I've never heard that one before. <laughs> yeah. But I you know but I think in in this case, I mean, we can control some of that by our own behavior, and I think that's the important message. The NFL, I think, has done that. That's the reason I think they have uh, the numbers that you. Uh, shared with us a few minutes ago. And uh, we have to continue to do that. Um, And uh, fans understand that. Fans do understand that. And they want to be back in the stadiums, and we want them back in the stadiums. But they understand our first priority is to make sure that they're safe. And our organization is safe. Our players, our staff, you know, coaches, et cetera.
0: Uh, Finally, do you get much of a sense, I mean, the the NFL has... uh put a lot of time and energy into social justice initiatives. And especially in the last week or so, when you've seen what's happened around the sporting landscape uh, because of the shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin, do you get much of a sense whether players in the NFL, say players on your team are going to push to, uh, uh, do some sort of demonstration during the season and not just in training camp? Yeah.
2: Well, I, I would say, you know, I, I would say this and I, I mean, you and I could talk about this for a couple hours probably and, and, and not run out of thoughts on it. Um, I think the NFL players, uh, particularly when you look at the mix of players, I mean, 70% are, are, are men of color. Um, so I, I, th- I think it's an issue uh, that obviously we're facing in America. It's an issue that um, that I think we've made changes and made improvements in. It was interesting. Um, we had a town hall meeting with uh, John Lewis 30 days before he passed away and had a separate uh, opportunity to have a conversation with Andy Young. Uh, both, you know, disciples of, of, of Dr. King in the truest sense of the word. And uh, they both said the same thing to me, you know, Um Things are much better than they used to be. They're nowhere near, and this is separate conversations, they're nowhere near where they should be. Uh, we believe in protest. We don't believe in any sort of violence. Uh, and we have great hope for the future. And I would say the same thing. I mean, I, I'm not obviously Andy Young. I'm not, you know, John Lewis, who is a, you know, a beloved friend. Um, but um, I think our players, uh, they, they should make their feelings known. Uh, their right to protest is is certainly um, is certainly theirs, and as it is all all Americans, um, and I and I think that in a way that's that's healthy, in a way that doesn't take away from the game itself, they should continue to uh, uh, make their feelings uh, known, shared, uh, make them public. We've had pl- players who've uh, committed to uh, involved in, in in marches and walks, etc and uh just to show their support. So uh, uh, I think the league is very conscious of this. I think that uh, the recent announcement uh, that the league has, you know, cobbled together another $250 million in terms of, and that that money is going to be used really on a national level. That does not speak to what's really happening at the franchises. Um, there'd be additional money is probably spent on top of that. But you know, that those money, those monies are being committed to organizations and, and, and institutions that are making a difference. They're being jointly agreed to by the players, by the Players Coalition, by the NFL, NFLPA, by owners. I am happen to be on that committee as well. And then I think I don't know an owner who doesn't have a group of players in their organization that doesn't have their own local committee. And we do as well. And we're focusing on the issues that they ask us to pay the most attention to, whether it be police accountability or social unrest or social injustice or equality issues, et cetera. Um, so, you know, I, I think uh, this is a unique time in our history, um, and I think it's important for the NFL to be active in it, and I think they are, uh, not because they have to be, though they do have to be, but really because they want to be and they should be. And I do give a lot of credit to, to, to Roger in that regard. I think Roger has been very clear on his feelings. Um, I thought his, uh, his his message to, uh, you know, America really, regard, regarding the Colin Kaepernick situation and reflecting back on 2016 and 17. And, uh, you know, it's not easy sometimes for, you know, all of us to reflect back and say, well, you know, the truth of the matter is, I had a position that I understood it then, but you know, maybe with the ability to look back in hindsight, maybe I would have thought about it a little bit differently. So I give Roger a lot of credit for doing that. It's not an easy thing to do often, and people uh, shy away from doing that very often. But I think to his credit, he did. So uh, I'm I'm proud of where the league is. I'm proud of where our players are, um, and they're very clear about their feelings on these issues. And you know, they want to see change and. You know, and and we all want to see change, but I think the difference now uh, is that the sense of urgency uh, is greater than it's been. The sense of awareness, the sense of focus. And this is not, you know, this is a problem for America. It's not it's not a problem for the black community. It's a problem for America. Question of unity, quality and, and all the things that we know that has really, truly made this country great.
0: Uh, quickly, do you believe that uh, the players in the NFL may push to, as their uh, brethren have in other sports, push to uh, one week during the season, choose not to play to amplify their protest? You,
2: you know, Peter, I really have no idea. I know that our players are are deeply committed to these uh, to these uh, issues, and they should be. Uh, I know that we are. Uh, do I think that's the best way to demonstrate? Uh, probably not. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's interesting. The last book that Dr. King wrote was never published when he was alive. He finished it when he was in Jamaica, and um, his wife published it a year after his his passing. and it, And it talks about the choices of community or or chaos, and and I think that. You know, my emphasis and I would encourage our players to think more about community than chaos. I think urgency is is great and I and I would totally support it. But I think we have to focus on bringing the country together, uh, attacking these issues as hard as we can, um, but not do it in a way where we're also being destructive. And I think just deciding not to play one Sunday uh, would it be the end of the world. The answer, of course, is no. Uh, would it be, uh, you know, the most productive thing to do in terms of, you know, advancing the issues? I'm not sure it really would be. So my counsel to them is that find ways that we can move from protest to progress. And there's a chapter in the book that talks about protest to progress. And uh, and I think, you know, it's that's where the emphasis has to be. We have to make changes, all the verbiage, all the protests, even all the protests they're They're great, and I understand them, providing they're not violent and they 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 focus on the right things. and but we really have to count our gains. And I would encourage and our players are encouraging our our fans to do this is that the be, the best form of protest that we can have in America is to vote. I mean, if you really if you really want to protest in the most meaningful way that you can, it may not seem that way, but it is the most meaningful way is to go out and vote. The last general election we had, we had 46% of America go out and vote. We, you know, whatever party you vote for, we got to do a lot better than that. Out of all the young people that were qualified to vote in the last election, only one out of five did. We got to do better than that. So, you know, that's where this conversion from protest to progress really has to come. If you don't like the leadership, the administrative leadership, city, county, state, federal levels, et cetera, vote differently. And encourage all your friends, family, people that you're connected to in any way to get out and vote as well.
0: Arthur Blank, good words. Really appreciate you taking the time. Good good luck this season. Good luck with good company, your new book.
2: Thank you, Peter. I appreciate that. And I always enjoy talking with you. Thank you for everything you do for our league and for for your good, good associates at NBC. We enjoy working with them all.
0: Before I go. I want to tell you a little bit about some new stuff that's happening at NBC. NBC has got this new streaming service called Peacock, and it's really cool. It's got some great sports stuff on it. You can get just basically, you can get lost in the sports stuff every weekday morning on Peacock. From 7 to 9, you've got pro football talk, mostly with Mike Florio and Chris Sims. From nine to noon, you've got the Dan Patrick Show. From noon to three, you've got Rich Eisen. I mean, that is a fantastic eight hours of programming that you're gonna learn everything about the world of sports, not just the NFL either. You know, Dan Patrick has been all over uh, the college football stuff recently. He knows everything, he's got a good source about all this Big Ten stuff going on, whether they're playing, whether they're not, when they're playing. So uh, Dan Patrick is great. And Rich Eisen, look, he's one of my favorite listens uh, in all of sports. There's going to be some more programming uh, beginning soon in September, and we'll let you know about that as it comes on. But just go and watch Peacock. It's a great new streaming service from NBC, and you'll really like the sports content from 7 a.m. Eastern to 3 p.m. Eastern. That's it for the Peter King podcast this week. Join me again next week, where I'll give you a little bit of a season preview, and I'll give you my Super Bowl pick. Thanks a lot for listening.